This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to the Check the Locks podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true True crime crime case. Thank you for helping me out with that. I think we are both in a little bit of a rough spot. (laughs) But Olivia, as always, it is great to see you. How was your trip to Mexico? How was your week? How are you? Mexico was amazing. Sad to be back, but happy to be back. Um, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I feel a little run down this week. You know, just a lot of running, taking care of the kid and working and stuff like that. But other than that, doing well. And this is always one of the highlights of my week. I'm glad that you're back. I'm glad that we're hanging out and recording this episode. Missed you while you're in Mexico and happy that we get to uh, dive into another case. Let's get started. I'm excited to hear about this one. Yeah. So last week we did the Black Widow, Stacey Caster. That was your case. People seem to really be intrigued by her in the Facebook group and online, which I thought was very, very cool. So I wanted to come with a heavy hitter this week. And I know you were making fun of me when I was sending you my notes, being like, what's up with prostitutes and And children and children? I swear that was not what I was looking for. (laughs) It just happened to be that. But uh, this case is is pretty heavy and, and I'm excited to go through it with you and to see where it falls in your deadbolt test. At first, I thought I might know, but then as I got to the end, I was like, okay, there's a chance that this might be a little unsettling. So really excited to run through you and and really excited to get the listener's point of view on it as well. I really like how we have a a, a under under the radar competition on who can get creepier week by week. Yeah, I think we think it's under the radar, but it's way more overt than maybe we like to imagine it is, but... Yes, I was going through this and I was like, okay, could this one be one that freaks her out a little bit? So I need a, we need a good one that's a, a little scary. I definitely agree. So I think we should just jump on in. What do you think? Yeah, let's hear it. Awesome. So our story begins on May 13th, 1984. It was a spring day in Tampa, Florida, and two young boys had spent the day with their mother before heading out to fly paper bag parachutes. While the two children were playing, they began to notice a foul odor. They followed the scent and stumbled upon a gruesome discovery. There, in the roadside weeds and the tall grass, was the body of a nude woman. Her wrists were tied behind her back with a rope wrapped around her neck. 
The body was covered in bruises, blisters, and insects. And a medical examiner determined that the body had been located in that spot for roughly three days. But the position in which the body was found was an immediate red flag to authorities. The woman's legs were spread roughly five feet apart from one another, heel to heel. Detectives had never seen anything like it. And when I was going through and doing my research, I was like, heel to heel, five foot. That's like, how tall are you? I'm 5'3". Five 5'3". Three. Five three. So that's literally like somebody spreading their legs to the point where you could lay in between. That's insane. That's doing the splits. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, the post certainly seemed deliberate, and authorities wondered if the killer meant to shock whoever discovered the body. Crime scene detectives photographed the area and measured the victim's distance from the road. To the investigators' dismay, there was very little evidence found at the scene. However, a piece of cloth tied in a knot was discovered and collected. Tire tracks were also located at the scene, and plaster casts were created, hoping to discover the make and model of the vehicle that left them. That's honestly one of my favorite evidence things. I think that's so cool that you can do that. And when they do the like the footprints and stuff. Yeah. And in some of the research I was watching about how they do that, they speak very specifically to like when you make those casts, if you find that actual vehicle, you know, if there's a rock that's stuck in there, mm-hmm. it's in the cast. So you can be like, yep, this is what we're working with. Like, this is definitely this vehicle, which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I love that when they do that on those television shows and stuff. It's very CSI. Mm hmm. The victim was brought to the medical examiner's office to be examined. Police left the ligatures in place so that they could be studied and photographed. Upon further investigation, the medical examiner was able to determine that the victim had been raped and strangled to death. Because of the brutal nature of the crime, detectives knew that they had to act fast. They feared it would only be a matter of time until another victim turned up. Because of this, investigators immediately contacted the FBI forensics lab and had the evidence hand-delivered to the lab in Washington, D.C. By doing this, the processing of the evidence was expedited and the FBI became an immediate partner in the investigation. Now, it's important to remember that the FBI has forensic experts who specialize in all types of evidence. This includes ballistics, vehicle tracks, fibers, and even knots. In fact, An expert in knots immediately got to work on examining the ligatures from the victim's wrist and throat. The restraints were removed intact in hopes to preserve any potential evidence. The type of knot that was used may also provide clues as to the identity of the killer. Specialized knots could mean the killer had some type of military background, but the ligatures were tied in simple granny knots and could have been tied by anyone. Then the fabric found near the body was examined. Fibers and particles were collected, but investigators didn't expect to find much as the body had been in the open for so long. Now, usually, particle and fiber evidence is lost due to weather or contamination of the crime scene. The rule of thumb is that in four hours, 80% of potential fiber evidence is lost. In 48 hours, it's 96%. And after three days, the chances of recovering any fiber evidence was almost zero. Because of this, the analyst was amazed when he located a red nylon fiber. Can we stop right there for just a second? I had no idea about this uh, fiber particles. Yeah, I didn't either. And then as I was going through the research, it started to make sense where if you think about, you know, let's say somebody murdered you in a living room and there was carpet on you and then you're out in a field for three days and it's raining or the wind's blowing. I was like, that makes a lot of sense that, Mm -hmm. that that evidence might be lost, you know? It's crazy, though, that 48 hours is 96%. I guess that's why they do the first 48. Yeah, it's crazy, or at least another reason why, you know. Now, the fiber that was found was trilobal, which means it was made of three lobes and had a shiny coating to it. Due to the size, shape, and type, the analyst believed it to be a carpet fiber, possibly from the killer's vehicle. Now, at this point, the FBI warned the local authorities in Tampa to keep the fiber information secret. If they were indeed dealing with a serial killer, providing that information to the press could cause the killer to change his pattern or vehicle. And I thought that was really smart, too, where it's like, if we're going to put some information out, let's do it, but let's hold something back. So if we need that as kind of like our ace in the hole, we've got that information. That kind of reminds me of your case um, that you did the other week where they didn't try for all the murders but one. Yeah, that was the Spokane serial killer where... They charged him for almost all the victims, but they left one in case they felt like he wasn't telling the truth. They could still try him for the death penalty. Right, right. You know, it's weird, but it's almost like a game of chess where you're like, I got to make sure I'm one move ahead, you know? Yeah. 
The FBI tire lab was also successful. From the plaster cast made at the crime scene, analysts were able to determine that the tires that created the tracks were from two different brands. Additionally, the tires were well-worn and mounted in reverse with the black walls facing out. This was not common, and it could be useful in identifying the vehicle. While the FBI was combing over the evidence in Washington, detectives in Tampa were working on identifying the victim. Using fingerprints, detectives were able to identify the victim as 19-year-old Lana Long. Long was a native of Southern California who had come to Tampa in February of 1984. She was working as an exotic dancer and had dreams of studying art and cinema. Long's boyfriend had noticed her from a newspaper photo and called police. Originally, the boyfriend became the prime suspect. However, girls that knew Long were questioned and received no credible evidence that pointed to the boyfriend. Though detectives now had a name and some forensic evidence, the case was at a standstill. But just two weeks later, another victim would be discovered. On Memorial Day of 1984, detectives were called to a murder scene at an isolated rural area off of an interstate. Like Lana Long, the victim was female and in her late teens to early 20s. The body was found nude and bound at the hands and neck with a leash-like extension, but this time something was different. Around the victim's neck was a hangman-style noose. The body was still warm, which told investigators that she had not been dead long. And because this crime scene was so fresh, detectives were hopeful they would be able to collect more evidence. This time, a men's olive green t-shirt was found at the scene. Detectives also found strands of hair that were determined to not belong to the victim, and hanging from a bush nearby was the victim's white pantyhose and jumpsuit. Both were covered in blood. Defensive wounds were found that indicated the victim may have fought back in a serious struggle. The victim had been raped, strangled, beaten, and her throat had been cut from nearly ear to ear. Because of this, the medical examiner determined three separate causes of death. Asphyxiation, head injuries, and a lacerated throat. This is too much. Yeah. Right now, they're not, they're not seeming very similar, but similar at the same time. Like, it's almost like he's getting more gruesome. He's escalating. You know, the first body they find, there's ligatures and... She appears to be beaten, and then this one, it's like he just... Took out his aggression. Yeah, strangled her, beat her, cut her throat. You know, it's it's definitely, if it is the same person, as a detective, I'm sure that's a big worry. It's like, things are getting worse, yeah. Again, tire tracks were located at the scene, and casts were taken to compare to the ones found at the scene of Lana Long's murder. Just like Long's case, the evidence was once again hand-delivered to the FBI lab in Washington. Analysts were able to locate more of the same red fibers found at the first crime scene, but they also found delustered fibers or without the shiny coating as well. Because of this, the FBI analysts were able to determine that the cases were in fact connected. The additional items found at the second crime scene also provided more insights. The green t-shirt was a men's large, which meant the killer would likely be of medium build and chest size. Additionally, the strands of hair that were found were medium brown and from a white male. This information allowed for the creation of a physical evidence profile that could be shared with other law enforcement agencies. Again, a tire expert analyzed the new set of tire tracks and found that they were in fact a match. Now the expert had impressions from all four tires and was able to determine that they were mounted on a mid-sized vehicle. But the best clue may have come from what the experts didn't know. Two of the tires were common Goodyear Viva brand, but a third was not on the FBI's extensive reference list. However, analysts were able to provide Tampa authorities with the name of a tire expert in Akron, Ohio. A detective flew to Akron with the impressions to see if they could gain any insights on which type of tire they may be looking for. How does one become a tire expert? Like what makes she want to decide to be a tire expert? I don't know. I imagine there's experts in everything, though. You know what I mean? And like to people who make them and if there's anybody listening in the Facebook group or anything like that who might have some insight on this, we would definitely love to hear it. But I imagine it's just like anything else where like if that's your job, you can kind of look at it as like art, like, you know, like this tire diffuses water by the grooves going this way. So it pushes everything out and you get this traction here. You know what I mean? It's not something I'm passionate about, but I can (laughs) see people being passionate about it. 
I watched the um, the documentary about the cats on Netflix, Inside the Cat's Mind or something. Mm. And it has a lot of cat experts on it, and it made me feel like I'm less of a cat person. Less of a crazy cat lady, I should say. Yeah, I would imagine it's easy to feel like a crazy cat lady until you actually see a crazy cat lady. Yeah. And then you're like, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm not that bad. I can get one more. No, I'm kidding. Oh, Jesus, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make sure this one doesn't talk. The experts were able to identify the tracks as being made from a Vogue tire. Now, in 1984, Vogue tires were actually handmade. So when we talk about tire experts, somebody was making this by hand. A lot of work. Yeah, for sure. And they came as standard equipment on Cadillacs. But that's why the Cadillacs were so expensive back then. Yep. I mean, they're still expensive now, but it's just that like custom work. You know what I mean? Like if you mm-hmm. get an Escalade, there's a lot of like, I, I imagine there's a lot of like hand stitching on stuff and yeah, things like that. So it's, it's crazy to think that somebody sat down with a piece of rubber and was like, this is going to be a tire when I'm done. You know what I mean? Police were told that if they found that tire mounted with black walls out, it would be as positive of an ID as a fingerprint. Additionally, after examining the wound on the victim's neck, detectives learned that the killer used a knife with a three-inch blade. Having two bodies, both bound and found with matching fibers, police now knew that they were hunting a serial killer. Detectives gave word to patrol officers, asking them to keep an eye out for a white male with brown hair and medium build driving a mid-sized vehicle with the tires reversed. While detectives did inform patrol officers to be on the lookout for a knife with a three-inch blade, they did not release any information about the red fibers that were found. Police were able to put together a composite drawing of the second victim, and it was released to the media. She was identified as 22-year-old Michelle Sims. Sims was a prior beauty contestant from California who moved to Tampa in May of 1984. Sims had a criminal history for prostitution and had been reported missing the day before her body was discovered. Because of Sims' criminal record and Long's work as an exotic dancer, police believed the killer was targeting sex workers in the Tampa area. They began hitting the streets to warn the women working and hand out business cards. Detectives urged the women in the area to contact authorities if they noticed anything strange. Then, on June 24th, the killer struck again. A worker had discovered a body in an orange grove, and detectives quickly rushed to the scene. Like an orange tree? Yeah. Yeah, in Florida, they have orange groves, so it's just like rows of orange trees. I didn't know that's what they were called. Yeah. My grandma lives in St. Petersburg. When we were kids, we would go, and it literally, they're just filling boxes all day. It's crazy. That's awesome. She would send them, she would freeze them and send them to us in the mail. So we'd be in Michigan just getting boxes of Florida oranges. I'm a fan of the cuties. The little ones, they're portable. Yeah, they're easy to they're easy to peel. Yeah, these ones were like bigger than baseballs. Like they're big oranges. Yeah, and they've got the seeds in them and stuff like that. I'm like, give me a seedless. Mini, easy to peel, mobile, tangerine. And the cuties, they're a little more tart. Like I like like the, the sour, sour mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> like how it go from her body was discovered in an orange grove to I love cuties. We now interrupt our orange talk to get back to the murder. (laughs) Like before, the victim was a female, but this time the pattern seemed to have changed. The victim was found fully clothed with no ligatures. Additionally, the body was so decomposed that it only weighed 25 pounds, including clothing. Because of this, police didn't initially believe the cases to be linked, but didn't want to rule out the possibility until they were 100% sure. Now, just like the previous victims, the clothing again was delivered to the Washington FBI lab. But this time, a new fiber expert was assigned the task of analyzing the evidence. However, he wasn't asked to compare the evidence to the old, and he also did not begin the analysis immediately. It took police some time to positively identify the third victim. And when they did, her lifestyle didn't seem to match with the previous. Elizabeth Laudenbach was 22 years old and worked as a solderer at a manufacturing plant in Odessa, Florida. Laudenbach lived at home with her parents and younger siblings only a few blocks away from the Nebraska Avenue Strip where the other victims worked. She had no criminal history and did not work as a sex worker, but she was known to hang out in the bars on the Strip. Laudenbach was last seen on the evening of June 8th when she stepped out for a walk near her home. 
Now, a note was found in her room that said, if anything happens to me, find my boyfriend. Oh, shit. Yeah, if I was the cops, I'd be like, oh, we got him. We got him. Because of this, the boyfriend was brought in for a polygraph test. He failed and quickly became the main suspect. Three months later, the results of the analysis of Loudenbach's clothes found at the crime scene were provided to Tampa detectives. It was a match. The same red fibers were now found on all three victims. At this point, every detective on the force was investigating the case. The focus of the investigation also began to shift. Police went from looking at boyfriends and neighbors to an unknown killer stalking and terrorizing the women of Tampa. But every lead turned to a dead end, and police knew it was only a matter of time until another body turned up. And three months after the discovery of Elizabeth Loudenbach, it did. On October 7, 1984, a worker found the body of a young woman at an entrance to a ranch in northern Hillsborough County. As police began to search the scene for evidence, similarities immediately started to emerge. The victim's bra was hanging from a gate at the entrance to the ranch, and the nude body of a young African-American woman was found nearby. Now, despite the similarities, like the clothing hanging you know, in a bush or on a gate, police initially thought she may not be connected to the serial killer. The victim had been raped, but she was shot instead of strangled. There was also no ligatures found on the body. And additionally, the victim was African-American, and serial killers tend to not cross racial boundaries, which I thought that was very interesting, too, because, you know, when you think back to someone like Son of Sam, for example, he was targeting women of a certain age with a certain haircut. You yeah, know? they're all or, usually very similar. Yeah, or it's like somebody who you look like a representation of this person that I'm angry at or something like that, you know? Yeah. So I'm sure to then go and target a completely different ethnicity Detectives were probably like, yeah, this isn't the same guy. Once again, the evidence was sent to the FBI to be analyzed, and Tampa detectives used fingerprints to identify the victim as 18-year-old Chanel Devin Williams. Williams had moved to Tampa from Winter Haven the month before. She told her parents that she was staying with friends. She had also been arrested for prostitution shortly before her murder. She was last seen on a street corner of the Nebraska Avenue Strip on September 30th, 1984. Now, back in Washington, the FBI hair and fiber analysis found Williams' death to, in fact, be the work of the same serial killer. The same red fibers were found, as well as a white male's brown pubic hair. So we haven't talked about the girl's Loudenbach's boyfriend. Is he still the prime suspect or no? No, they were looking at him and then another victim turned up and they realized we have to stop looking at like boyfriends and neighbors like this is a serial killer. This is just some random guy. Yeah, who failed a polygraph, though, and she left the note saying that. So, like, he might be into prostitution. Yeah, I don't know. The, the research I found didn't really go into much detail, but at some point, they just were like, we have to shift the focus like it is in this guy. Okay. Yeah. Now, at this point, detectives were growing concerned. Crossing racial bounds and changing his weapon means the killer had changed his routine. It's important to remember that shifting from routine is very rare in serial killers and can make them difficult to capture. Detectives now had the bodies of four victims and were growing desperate to solve the case. In fact, the first four victims were all discovered on a Sunday. Because of this, the lead detective on the case would not make plans at all on Sundays. Instead, he would sit at home waiting for the phone to ring. That's obsessive, but I would want him doing my investigation if I was murdered. Right, and I imagine it's kind of a double-edged sword because you don't want anybody else to die, but, like, you need that evidence. I need that one thing to break the case, so I'm sure it's a little bit of, like, something's got to happen. And with the fiber statistics, that's the thing that's connecting them all, and if you have to find them within so many hours, then I could see where it's important. And I was also going through the research, and I was like, what kind of shag carpet does this guy have that there's just, like, carpet everywhere? You know what I mean? I don't know, maybe he had one of those maroon Cadillacs with some fringe from the ceiling or something. It was popular back then, right? Yeah. It was the 80s. So, On a Sunday, only one week later, detectives were called to yet another murder scene. A woman's body wrapped in a gold bedspread was found by an amateur archaeologist. The bedspread had been tied with a blue jogging suit. Ligatures were found on the victim's legs and ankles, and her hands were tied in front of her with a red bandana. Red fibers. Oh, for sure. 
Maybe he's tying all the other victims up and then untying them with this bandana, like later. It's possible, but I think the FBI analysts were able to say, like, because of how the fiber was built, like that tri-lobal, this is typically like carpet fiber. But it did kind of strike me as interesting, and it didn't really go into it in the research, but, like, was the color red, like, a thing for this guy? Because we know there's red fibers, red bandana, you know what I mean? It's, It's strange. The victim was bound, raped, strangled, hit in the head, and dragged through the dirt. The killer had found his way back to his old routine. And this time, detectives could see the red fibers on the victim's body with their naked eye. 28-year-old Karen Din's friend was quickly identified from fingerprints. Din's friend grew up in St. Petersburg and had a history of drug use. Like three of the other victims, Din's friend was working as a prostitute at the time of her death. She was last seen walking the Nebraska Avenue Strip. Now, at the lab in Washington, FBI analysts compared the fibers on Din's friend's body to those found on the four previous victims, and again, they were a match. With no suspects and the bodies continuing to be discovered, authorities' frustrations continued to grow. Police knew that the longer it took to catch the serial killer, the more victims there would be. And two weeks later, on Halloween of 1984, a contractor discovered the mummified remains of yet another victim while digging a ditch. The medical examiner was able to determine that the body had been left there for roughly a month. It had decomposed so badly that making an identification would be a challenge. Now, in this case, there were no ligatures, but looking at the body, detectives knew it was the work of the same killer. Then, on November 4th, while waiting for the FBI's assistance in identifying the latest victim, a 911 call came in that seemed unrelated. A man reported that his daughter had been abducted and raped. 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh was leaving her job at a donut shop at around 2.30 a.m. While riding her bike, a man grabbed McVeigh, threw her into his car, and drove off. He held McVeigh at gunpoint, reclined her seat so that no one would see her, and told her to remove all of her clothes. McVeigh told police that she was bound, gagged, and taken to the man's apartment. Now, unfortunately, McVeigh had been sexually assaulted before. In fact, at this time in her life, she was even contemplating suicide on the night of her abduction. She had written a note before leaving for her shift at the donut shop, and she actually picked up an extra shift so she wouldn't have had to go home. That is heartbreaking. It's very sad. And then this happens to her. I will say I don't want to spoil anything. But I think as we go through it, you're going to be like, that's awesome. So okay, I just want to you know, make sure I'm putting that out there for you. Okay. So because of these things, she knew how to read the mood of her abuser, and she knew that resisting could mean her death. McVeigh was kept in the home blindfolded for more than 26 hours and was raped repeatedly. But McVeigh was determined to survive and memorized everything that she could. At one point, her abductor removed the blindfold and Lisa studied his face, trying to commit each little detail to memory. Now, because he allowed her to see his face, McVeigh was certain that she wouldn't leave the apartment alive. In an attempt to gain sympathy, she told her abductor that she was the sole caregiver to a sick parent. Surprisingly, it worked, and the man let her go. At around 3 a.m. the following night, the man loaded Lisa in the car and began to drive towards her neighborhood. He stopped at an ATM to get money for gas. Now, Lisa is peeking out from her blindfold in the car and continuing to memorize as many details as she could. A Howard Johnson, road signs in the area, and the word Magnum on the dashboard of the man's vehicle. Finally, Lisa McVeigh was released near her home. After her father made the report, police immediately sat down with Lisa. They were amazed at how much she was able to recall and describe considering she had gone through such a traumatic event. I'm surprised that the police are shocked that she remembers all the details. I mean, if Lisa has been watching the news around her area, she is that age range. This is where we get on the deadbolt test, you know? She's at the age range where this is happening to women like her. I would be on high, high alert, so I could see where that's not an uncommon thing. I definitely agree with you. I think that there would have had to have been like a sense of knowing in the community or like a heightened sense of alert. Yeah. I do think that there are some people that are like, I'm able to identify that I'm in like a terrible situation right now and I need to focus up and like pay attention to everything. Cause I know a lot of people like go into shock or like mentally shut down. Yeah. Because of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, and she kind of did the opposite where she's like, no, not today. Like I'm going to remember 
everything. I know. know? That's how I want to be, but I forget everything. So I'm sure it would be the latter for me. Yeah, for sure. I think I'd be the same way where I just emotionally like shut down. Although Lisa escaped, there were many similarities to the serial killer police were hunting. The rape, the man's build, hair color, and the interior color of the vehicle all pointed to McVeigh's attacker and the serial killer being one and the same. Lisa's sweater was again sent to the FBI lab to be processed for fiber comparison. While waiting for that evidence to come back, yet another body was discovered. On November 6, 1984, a woman's body was found on the same road as the fourth victim, Chanel Williams, in a vacant lot near a mobile home park. This time, the body was dumped further north on the road and was actually in a completely different county, but the ligatures found matched those of the previous victims. Although the body was nearly bones when discovered, the leash-like rope was found around the victim's neck. Another ligature was found wrapped around an arm bone. Near the body, police discovered the victim's tattered blouse and jewelry. The bones of the victim had been scattered over an acre-sized plot of land. The medical examiner now had the challenge of piecing the bones together. From the size and density, it was determined that the remains were that of a young white female. The victim was later identified as 18-year-old Virginia Johnson. Not much is known about Johnson. Archives show that she was born in Connecticut and had spent time in and out of Florida, again, working as a sex worker. Johnson vanished from the Nebraska Avenue Strip in late October while running to buy cigarettes. Amazingly, a single red fiber was found in Johnson's hair. So when we talked about fiber evidence and how quickly it is that it disappears, this woman is decomposed to bone and hair and just by luck. And it's happening every time. I need to know what this red fiber is coming from. Well, just by luck, though, it's like this one fiber Mm -hmm. just ended up being there. You know, it's it's crazy. Within only a week, on November 12th, another body was discovered. When they arrived at the crime scene, detectives found the remains of another white woman. She was nude except for knee-high stockings and lying face down. Police turned the victim over to find that she had been beaten horrifically and most likely struggled to fight back against her attacker. Ligature marks were found on her neck and arms, but no rope was found. Again, the victim's clothing were nearby, and detectives immediately noticed little red fibers stuck to the victim's blue jeans. The victim's driver's license was discovered in one of the pockets. Her name was Kim Marie Swan. She was only 21 years old. As a teen, Swan was a regular on the Nebraska Avenue Strip and briefly worked as an exotic dancer. Just a few months before her death, Swan had decided to change her life. She and her infant son had moved in with her parents, and she had enrolled in vocational school to become a medical technician. She was last seen at a convenience store on November 11th. The next day, her body was discovered under an overpass by a man swapping out a billboard. The killer appeared to have pulled off to the side of the road and dumped the body. Tire tracks left in the grass matched the ones that were cast from the previous crime scenes. The killer was accelerating, and the body count now stood at eight victims. Police were growing more and more frustrated when a call from the FBI lab in Washington came in. They had found a match to the fibers in a rape case. This case turned out to be the abduction and rape of Lisa McVeigh. This was the break the detectives had been waiting for. So at this point, Lisa had these fibers on her sweater. The man let her go, and these fibers are matching what is being found on all of these bodies. So they're like, okay, it was this guy. Using the information from Lisa McVeigh as a compass, detectives began to search for the killer's apartment and Red Dodge Magnum. What's a Red Dodge Magnum? I need to Google that. Yeah, let's uh, Google it. So they kind of look like, I had a 1992 Volvo for a little while. I can see what that looks like That It's very similar. It's like kind of boxy. And I don't know, his I don't believe was, but I think they even had like a hatchback version of it back then too. Well, the older ones look cooler than the new ones. Yeah. At this point, a task force was created to supply more manpower in the hunt for the serial killer. Because the suspect had used an ATM, detectives filed a subpoena for the records of all the machines in the area. Another team filed an additional subpoena for all of the owners of Dodge Magnums in Hillsborough County. 
Detectives then compared the bank records and auto records for any name that may match on both. This was the first time authorities heard the name Robert Joe Long. I was about to say, let's hear about this wild man. Robert Bobby Joe Long was born to Joe and Luetta Long on October 14, 1953 in Canova, West Virginia. Long was born with an extra Y chromosome or Klinefelter syndrome. The condition caused Long to produce excess amounts of estrogen and display female traits such as breast development. As a child, Long was teased for his large breasts and he actually underwent breast reduction therapy in his adolescence. Long also suffered a string of head injuries as a child due to several different accidents. His relationship with his mother was dysfunctional at best. Long would sleep in his mother's bed until he was a teenager and reportedly resented the many short-term boyfriends that she would bring home after her night shift ended. That could have been me as a child. I slept with my mom till I was like eight. Well, I think there's a difference between sleeping with your mom till you're eight and like sleeping with your mom till you're like 15 or 16. Yeah, you're right. But there's also an element of this where it definitely seems like there was some childhood trauma, like being a kid and like you're growing breasts like a woman at a young age and you have to go get a breast reduction. And I mean, kids are ruthless. Oh, my God. Kids are terrible. The case next week is going to be about children. Oh, you are always with the kids. Ruthless kids. But like I remember boys in my middle school and like elementary, I mean, not so much elementary school, but middle school, like when girls started developing, they would, you know, make jokes or call that out. So like to be a, a boy and be going through that involuntarily and getting made fun of and then thinking that like as an adult, whoever is committing these crimes is being so brutal to women. It kind of made sense in my head. I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I, I get why you would have that anger inside of you, you know? Yeah. Long married his high school girlfriend in 1974 and had two children before they divorced in 1980. On the same day, the ATM and Dodge owners were compared. Long had actually been spotted driving the Magnum and was pulled over by local police. He was told that they were looking into a robbery and asked to photograph him. Long was cooperative and complied with the officers, but would not allow them to search his car. Immediately, the patrol officer contacted the field office and was instructed to stay with Long once he left. Using the photo taken by the patrol officer, a picture lineup was created to show Lisa McVeigh, and Lisa immediately pointed out Bobby Joe Long. Detectives now had their man, but they needed to do things right. Warrants would be needed, and the task force would need to be ready to take him into custody. To ensure the public's safety, nonstop surveillance of Long was ordered. Unmarked cars followed his every move. Detectives worried that Long may be onto them because he began throwing away a large amount of trash. However, officers would take the bags and comb through the contents. Long was followed to a car wash where he vacuumed his car. Police seized the vacuum and retrieved all of its contents. Everything Long thought that he was destroying, detectives were in fact collecting. 24 hours after his identification, Long was followed to a local movie theater. He sat watching a movie not knowing that he was surrounded by undercover officers who were surveilling him. Outside the theater, officers inspected Long's car to identify the type of tires on the vehicle. Two Goodyear tires and the Vogue tire identified by the Akron expert. This was the vehicle that police had been searching for. Long was arrested without incident as he was leaving the movie theater. Detectives quickly got to work processing his vehicle. A piece of carpeting was removed and sent to the FBI's lab in Washington. While waiting for the results, detective interviewed Bobby Joe Long. Now, their strategy was to start with Lisa McVeigh, which Long confessed to immediately. Police then began to ask Long if he ever picked up prostitutes. He admitted to picking up sex workers in Miami, but told detectives that he wasn't sure if he had done so in Tampa. Police then began to transition and ask about the murders. Long initially denied committing any of them. Meanwhile, the analysts in Washington compared fibers taken from Long's car to the fibers found on the victims. It was a match. Detectives explained to Long that they had matched the fibers, knew what type of tires were on his vehicle, and that they had been onto him since the discovery of the second body. With the evidence being so overwhelming, Long looked down at his feet and said, I did it. I killed him. 
Not only did Long admit to killing every victim, but he described each murder in a five and a half hour tape confession. He showed no remorse and no emotion. And when asked why he killed these girls, Long informed detectives that it was his secret and he would take it to his grave. So for me as a detective, I would be incredibly frustrated because I know like I've caught this guy who's done it. But now I'm like, just like, why? Like, tell me why. He's like, nope, not telling y'all. One, that's kind of interesting, too, because we were talking about the Spokane killer from the last couple of weeks. And he was the same way. He took the plea deal so he didn't have to testify. They never got to ask him or he didn't have to say anything about it. So I'm sure that's one of those things that haunts you. It's like, why would you do this? You know, during the interview, Long also confessed to a ninth murder and drew a map to the remains. When the body was discovered, detectives used dental records to identify her as 21-year-old Vicki Elliott. Elliot waited tables at a Ramada Inn coffee shop near the Strip. She was planning on moving to Michigan where she would study to be a paramedic. On September 7th, Elliot had asked the neighbor for a ride to work. When the neighbor arrived, Vicky was nowhere to be found. Now, what's interesting is that Vicky Elliot used to carry scissors for her protection for her mile-long walk to work. Those same scissors were found next to her when police discovered the remains. Sad she tried. These are heartbreaking. And that's a trend in a couple of these, too, where it's like these women fought, you know, and that might be, you know, why they were beaten so badly, because it was they you know, fought back. Whereas Lisa McVeigh didn't. And she got released. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but we were talking about the sixth victim who was discovered on Halloween. She was the one who was decomposed so badly that it was going to be hard for them to identify her. Long actually identified that victim in his confession as 22-year-old Kimberly Hobbs. So he knew who they were, or at least knew their name. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, probably going through their driver's license or, you know, if they were sex workers, he may have had interactions with them previously, Mm -hmm. you know. Now, not much is known about Hobbs, but again, she was a sex worker. She was last seen walking with a group of prostitutes on the Nebraska Avenue Strip. Late in the same evening, detectives held a press conference to announce the arrest of their serial killer, Bobby Joe Long. Over the next few days, Tampa detectives found that they weren't the only one tracking Long. Another detective in nearby Pascal County realized that Long fit the description of a man who had raped a Pascal woman only a few months prior. Upon searching Long's home, police found a photo album containing pictures of nude women, one of which was the detective's rape victim. While in jail, Long confessed and even bragged about the crime. While investigating his home, detectives also recovered other trophies that Long collected from his victims. This included jewelry and other photographs. As they continued to dive into Long's life, detectives soon realized that he was in fact the classified ads rapist named for his M.O. Long would canvas local want ads looking for women who were selling beds or other furniture. When the unsuspecting woman would let Long into their home, he would attack them and brutally rape them. He had never been apprehended. It's believed that Long may have raped 50 women living in Florida during the 1970s and 80s, some even during his murder spree. So as he's still out murdering these women, it's like he can't get enough. He's raping all these other women. Yeah. I wonder what about the ones that he murdered, like made him murder them and not these other women you know as detectives got ready for the 1985 thanksgiving weekend they thought their nightmare of a case was over but a couple out walking found a skull bones clothes and three pieces of rope tied into ligatures a forensic dentist linked the remains to a missing persons report long confessed the victim was artist ann wick who had been missing for eight months she was 20 years old and she was Long's first victim. This brought Long's death toll to 10, but detectives believe there could easily have been more victims. Due to Florida's statute of limitations, Long was never charged for the classified ad rapes. However, on September 24, 1985, Long took a plea deal and pled guilty to eight of the homicides and the abduction and rape of Lisa McVeigh. Long received six life sentences and 693 years for attacks on women in 1984. For the Hillsborough murders, he was sentenced to 33 life sentences. The state retained the option to seek the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims, 
And in July 1986, Long was found guilty and sentenced to die in Florida's electric chair. On April 23rd, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Bobby Joe Long's death warrant. Long's appeals were denied, and he died of lethal injection on May 23rd of 2019, more than 30 years after his conviction. Now, Lisa McVeigh, the once suicidal teen victim who identified Bobby Joe Long and basically was able to stop this man from doing all of these terrible things, well, she persevered. McVeigh is now a Hillsborough Sheriff's deputy. That's awesome. Yeah, she went from being a victim to not only am I going to be a sheriff's deputy, but I'm a sheriff's deputy in the same town where this thing happened to me so I can help other people. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, Officer McVeigh. Thank you very much, Officer McVeigh. So, Olivia, that's it. That is the crimes of Bobby Joe Long. How did I do? Did I do okay? That was a good one. This, I mean, this one is yet a scary one. I feel that um, if we get into the deadbolt test now... I would honestly, I'm just going to jump right in and be like, I'm kind of at like a 9 or a 10. I'm going to go with a 10. I'm going to take a 10. All these women were just these young women working jobs, trying to get by, and this man was out there targeting them. And then the poor women that we don't even get to have like justice served for them really is the, the rape victims. I mean, this man is a, a serial killer. And it's interesting that he he had childhood trauma, but... I would really like to know his motive and like why he chose to kill the ones that he did and what what was his reasoning. Yeah, and it's really interesting because the detectives who worked the case, there's a quote of them saying like if he was ever released, you would be following a trail of bodies very shortly after that release. Oh, 100%. He has an addiction of some sort, an obsession. Or a compulsion. Yeah. But he's definitely a monster. So you're saying you're putting it at a 9 or 10? I'm going to go with a 10. I'm going to say a solid 10. Where you stand. So looking at this case, I would put this as a guy, probably a six or a seven, right? Because this is not something where, you know, this guy is going to try to, you know, answer my classified ad and break into my house and do anything like that to me. Like he, he has a, a very set, this is who I go after, right? I was just telling my roommate that I would like to sell some things on like the classifieds, you know, but I'm too afraid to do it when I'm here alone because. You never know what can happen. You have to meet at the police department or the fire station. There's like a safe pickup area. Yeah, we have one. That's where I, anytime I sell anything, that's where I'm like, meet me there. And if you don't want to meet me there, I'm not telling you anything. Right. Yeah, we have one in Jefferson Parish. But as a woman, I could understand why this would hit so hard because, you know, you start off and you're like, oh, this guy's killing prostitutes. Yeah. You know, it's like we've had that case before. But then you find out, oh, okay. Now he's killing people that aren't prostitutes and now he's kidnapping people and letting them go. And then you go back and you find out that for like a decade, he was just raping random women. You know what I mean? So for me, I would put it as a, at a six or a seven because I'm not worried about something like this happening to me necessarily. I will tell you, I was jumpy. Like I researched this till about 1130 last night, got into mm-hmm. bed and every sound that I heard, I was like, what's that? What's that? <laughs> but Bobby Long. Yeah, yeah, he's like, hey, I'm coming for you. But, <laughs> but you know, by the time I woke up this morning, it kind of left me until we got it ready to record. But, yeah, so for me, it'd be a, a six or a seven. Sounds like you've got it at a nine or ten, but it's just. I'm doing a solid ten. It's just crazy how one person can be. So monstrous. Incapable of so much destruction. Yeah. It's just so much pain and. And just like no remorse. Yeah, no remorse, no emotion. And then you've got your victims, but then you've also got your victims' families. You know what I mean? Like every one of these people had a family and it's just like a ripple effect of like heartbreak and pain and destruction. And he just reveled in it, it seems like, you know? Well, this was a good one, John. I am glad that I could do you the service. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to step my game up this week. Yeah, you did. You did it. Well, Olivia's putting this at a 10. I'm going to put it at a 7. That's where we fall. But we want to know, where does this land on your deadbolt test? You can reach out to us and let us know. Find us on the socials. We are on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. Please join our amazing Facebook group. If you pause the show right now, go into the show description. There is a link. Click that link. Join our Facebook group. Say it every week. It is the best place on the internet. We want to know what you think. Was this a nine? Was this a 10? Was this a two? Maybe this one didn't get you at all. 
We just want to hear what you think. So please reach out to us. Let us know. I don't know about you, Olivia. I think we talked about this last week after all that antifreeze needing a, a palate cleanser, but I kind of feel the same this week. Yeah, we need some happy news. I think so. I think we should read a five-star review. What do you think? Yeah. So this week's five-star review comes from Baby Bottle 12 They said, I'm obsessed with true crime podcasts and have been listening for years. When I came across this recommended podcast, I knew I had to give it a listen. I binged all episodes in the same night. John and Olivia know how to keep you listening and wanting to learn more in true crime fashion. I enjoy that they research cases that aren't known as well, which has given me a newfound shock value on just how much horror truly happens in our world. Keep up the great work and look forward to new weekly stories. I definitely check my locks every night before bed. That's awesome, baby bottle. Not that you check your locks every night before bed, but thank you for that five-star review. Yeah, baby bottle blue, that is absolutely amazing to binge all of the episodes. We're on episode 16 now. So to binge all of those episodes in one night, depending on what you listen, that's quite the feat. Probably didn't sleep. I wouldn't have slept. That's a a lot to listen to. Uh, So you are definitely my kind of person. Thank you for checking out the show. And we are so happy to have you as part of our community. We would love to send you some stickers. Uh, We got magnets. We got all sorts of stuff. Hit us up on the socials. Again, Instagram, check the locks pod, Twitter, check the locks. Hit us up in the Facebook group. If you're not a social person, head on over to checkthelockspod.com. Click that email button. Send us an email. Let us know where to send some goodies to you. But thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And again, you know, I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but if you have taken the time to review the show, thank you for doing that. It helps us more than you know. It's going to get us out in front of other people to listen, gets us in show recommendations, things like that. So if you have left us a review, thank you so much for doing that. If you would like to have your five-star review read on the show, and maybe you haven't left us a review yet, Olivia, how can they do that? Well, they need to hop on the Apple Podcast app. Scroll all the way to the bottom where you see the five stars. Click all five stars and leave us a review and let us know what you think. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love to hear from you guys. And I also made a little hack. So again, if you are listening to the show, if you have not left us a five-star review, go into the show description, hit pause, go on in, and you can actually click a link that will take you to Apple Podcasts and you can leave a review right from there. So no searching, no nothing, anything like that. So that is it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us. Check back with us next week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week.